This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Like a lot of women in journalism, Taylor Lorenz is subjected to a steady din of insults, threats, and sexually explicit messages on social media. That absolutely shouldn't go with the territory, but it does. But Lorenz, who writes for the New York Times, occasionally finds herself on the bad side of cable television's most watched person. That would be Fox News host Tucker Carlson. And when that happens, something quite interesting and, in fact, quite disturbing also happens. That din of toxic social media commentary becomes a roar. Anecdotally speaking, we know that this isn't an experience that Lorenz has had alone, but it hasn't been well studied. So to analyze the impact of attacks by prominent male media figures on the social media mentions of female journalists, New York University's Center for Social Media and Politics and the International Women's Media Foundation collected data on three case studies. The first was Carlson's targeting of Lorenz. The second was Glenn Greenwald's targeting of the same journalist. And the third was Carlson again when he targeted the journalist Virginia Heffernan. In each case, the researchers found a pronounced spike of insults, identity attacks, toxic comments, sexually explicit messages, and even threats of violence that occurred immediately after Carlson and Greenwald turned their attention on the female journalists. Joining us from the Center for Social Media and Politics at New York University, where she is a research scientist and data engineer, is Megan Brown. Megan, welcome. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for having me. And also with us today is Elisa Lees Munoz. For the past nine years, she's been the executive director of the International Women's Media Foundation. Elisa, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Megan, to, to understand the context of this report, I was hoping we could start at another similar incident a few years back. This was when former President Donald Trump was spending quite a bit of time attacking Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the people around Governor Whitmer, and, and particularly those who were responsible for her social media channels, were noticing something that would happen right in the wake of President Trump's attacks. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, so that's um, actually where uh, this research agenda with uh, my co-author on the one of my co-authors on the piece, Steve Sanderson, and I started was when uh, we were reading reports about Governor Whitmer and uh, her comm staff talking about when uh, Trump spoke about her at rallies or tweeted about her, the uh, toxicity and threats of violence and sexually explicit messages in their comments that they had to field on Facebook or Twitter or wherever they were running communications material tended to spike. And this gets really scary. This situation with Governor Whitner gets really scary really quickly. This was at right about the same time that uh, 14 men, many of whom were members of a militia, were charged with plotting to kidnap her. Yes, exactly. Um, so the online conversation can be extremely toxic, but that doesn't mean that the consequences remain online. Um, people uh, sometimes take action in the real world. And so we knew this anecdotally from this case, from other cases. You're a data scientist with an interest in social media, and you you punched the numbers in the Whitmer case. You were able to quantify the effect that Trump's attacks had on how people addressed and responded to Governor Whitmer on Twitter 
in in the wake of of any time that Trump would would bring up her name in in one of his rallies. Yes, uh, that was something uh, that we were able to identify uh, due to some great work uh, at the Center for Social Media and Politics, collecting uh, large amounts of Twitter data related to politicians and public figures, um, and also the work of open source tools like the Perspective API produced by Jigsaw and Google's counter abuse technology team. Can we talk about that tool for a second? Because it really is kind of magnificent. Like you said, it's not likely possible to do this kind of work. This is quantification of, you know, just millions, literally millions of tweets uh, without this tool. Talk about how you use the tool a little bit. So um, the tool is available to people who are using Google's developer platform. You can also provide uh, the perspective tool with comments. For example, in the case of Governor Whitmer, tweets that mentioned her name to the Perspective API, and the Perspective API will provide a score between zero and one for any given piece of content. And um, we're sort of, if it's more towards zero, then it's not likely to contain that type of content. So for example, threats, if it's closer to zero, it's probably not very threatening. If it's closer to one, uh, they're almost certainly that it's a very threatening piece. Uh, So this is something that is used very often to moderate online conversations and make online conversations healthier, but it can also be used as a tool to sort of quantify when these things go wrong and quantify the impact. And and how do we do that? I mean, how let's take a step back here and explain, like, how do you come up with a metric or how does this tool come up with a metric, the developers of this tool come up with a metric for like toxic versus more benign social media criticism? Because... A lot of people, of course, would say, oh, that's that's a subjective judgment. How do we go about putting social media commentary into these different buckets? So there's a large body of training data. Some of that remains behind the black box or um, sort of behind the wall of what Google allows us to see, where they've gotten millions of comments labeled. Um, from various online sources where actual people uh, look at a comment and give their rating on the comment on its level of toxicity, threats, insults, identity attacks, sexually explicit content, and so on. And they use that uh, data to train a classifier uh, for other pieces of text that we might want to label as having any of those attributes. And when you use this tool... And when you applied it to the Whitmer situation and you started exploring its use in other situations, you were starting to see this, this bump, this, I mean, bump might not even correctly uh, or adequately describe what happened here. When President Trump would talk about Governor Whitmer, there was a large rise in, in the toxicity of the conversations about her on social media. How, can you can you put that into numbers? How big was, was this rise? Um, I don't remember specifically in the Whitmer case how big the rise was, uh, but we did see rather consistently across many of these cases, whether it was the case of Governor Whitmer or we analyzed a couple of other politicians in the same report, Uh, that after Trump targeted them either on Twitter or in his speeches, we did find a uh, considerable increase anywhere from 50 to 100 percent 
in the amount of toxic content in their mentions. Elisa, let me bring you in here because I'd like to know how your organizations decided to come together on this more recent project. Were you aware of the work that Megan and her colleagues at NYU were doing, or were you looking for a quantifiable way to assess the damage that is caused when media personalities attack women journalists? How did you guys find each other? Well, um, we'd been hearing anecdotally that this was the experience of many women journalists who were targeted by uh, either people in the news media or politicians around the world who were experiencing these uh, impacts on their social media and toxic messages that they were receiving. And um, the center actually reached out to us because they knew of our work trying to support and help train and protect women journalists who are experiencing online attacks. And Elisa, this probably needs to be said, like irrespective of what happens after a prominent male media personality attacks a female journalist, there's already a certain level of toxicity that most, and and it probably can be argued just about all women journalists deal with just, well, just for having the audacity to be journalists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we generally refer to women in the public space. So anybody who dares to speak out publicly is targeted and women politician and women journalists face very similar attacks from either what we call opportunistic trolls or people with political interests that they're trying to foment. And there's been ample research about um, the percentage of attacks that women journalists have received. And do you find, I mean, you've been the, you've been the director at the center now for uh, almost a decade. Is it your perspective that this has increased over time? Generally, I, I believe that we are, we are seeing that there is a sharp increase in the targeting of women journalists. I mean, obviously, a decade ago, even the role of social media in reporting has changed drastically. And this requirement almost for journalists to participate in social media as part of their work um, has contributed to uh, this very personal response from viewers, readers, and people with political interests. You know, it's interesting you use that word requirement because, I I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about that before, but increasingly, this is not just something that journalists do on the side. It is expected that they will engage in the public through social channels, and that makes them vulnerable to this trolling, to to, to these kinds of attacks. It's absolutely part of their work, which is what makes this problem so pernicious. Uh, It's driving women journalists out of the news industry, which is reducing the diversity that one finds in the news media, which has already been a problem historically. But more than that, I think that when uh, this this calls uh, into question the role of news organizations and employers and what the International Women's Media Foundation is trying to do is really to call for a culture of change within media organizations to address this as a work issue. Let's let's talk about the Lorenz and Carlson case that we mentioned 
at the start of the program. Lorenz is a media figure, and certainly I think in many people's estimations, that means she's fair game for some critique if she does or says something that is against community values, against journalistic ethics. But it's interesting to note what it was that got her on Tucker Carlson's radar, because it wasn't a lapse of judgment or character. It wasn't a mistake. It was, well, it was just a plea to support women who endure online harassment, just a tweet, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think this points to the very nature of the people who are conducting this kind of harassment, the misogynistic undertones, um, well, not even undertones, overtones that are exhibited through these hordes, you know, that that are online and and looking for public public female figures to attack. So, so Tucker mocks Lorenz on his program, and then. Megan, quantitatively speaking, what happened next? What did we see in her mentions? So Tucker Carlson mocks Lorenz on his program, as you said. Um, And then after that, we looked for replies to her tweets, tweets that mentioned her uh, Twitter handle or her name um, and tweets that were quote tweeting her. So anything that we could consider as being part of the conversation surrounding Lorenz. And we found that the already sort of horrendous baselines of uh, the prevalence of toxic content in uh, the tweets of these journalists spiked um, by over uh, over 100% in the case of Lorenz and Carlson. And uh, that was sort of on all fronts, um, including toxicity, sexually explicit messages, insults, and the other categories, all of them spiked. A lot of what was written about Lorenz in those following few days after Carlson took her on on his program has, uh, well, a lot of it's been deleted. It's been removed from Twitter over the past year, but not all of it. Uh, It's been almost a year since this happened. And uh, last night, it was easy for me to still find tweets from that day in which her intelligence was questioned. Her appearance was mocked. Her mental health was questioned. And some of the people who, who I should say, like describe themselves in their Twitter bios as Christian people used words to describe her that I'm pretty sure aren't usually permitted in most churches. I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty awful stuff. This is an awful experience for somebody to go through. Yeah, I I always say, Matt, that you can't overstate the scope and impact of these targeted attacks and the misuse of the bully pulpit by these prominent journalists, in my opinion, it can only be knowingly because uh, there is so much evidence about what happens when they uh, target journalists like they do. It really can't be overstated and the IWMF has done research showing the psychological impact of being the target of this kind of abuse over time is very similar to those who exhibit PTSD. Sometimes journalists have to leave their homes for a period of time because there is really no way to know when it may turn into a physical attack. So the the impact is real. Many journalists, as I mentioned before, decide that they just didn't sign up for this and decide to leave the profession. It's a real threat to press freedom in our country and around the world. 
And we should say here that Lorenz has been pretty open about what this has done to her life. Uh, so has Virginia Heffernan. Uh, and in fact, she posts some of the messages that she's gotten on Twitter. Um, one, one was a handwritten letter that called her, and here I quote, a filthy, pathetic, worthless person, except for the word the writer used wasn't person. Um, other threats that she's posted are, are rape threats. Uh, another was a one-word email uh, that the word I can't say on public radio. And that word, by the way, was repeated again and again and again in other messages that she received and is posted. This feels like it wouldn't just be frightening, but exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. These journalists uh, have a target put on their backs. The kind of threats and attacks are extremely gendered, as you mentioned. And uh, oftentimes when these journalists have families. Their families are mentioned in these threats. Their daughters are threatened with rape and worse. And it's very difficult to live day to day under those working conditions. You know, conservative America doesn't have a monopoly on misogyny. We should probably note here, it's not just women who are perceived as liberal who are attacked in this way. Um, I spent some time this week looking at the comments about Fox News host Laura Ingram on Twitter and the gendered attacks, the misogyny, the very mean-spirited observations about her appearance. It's all it's all pretty horrifying. And that's that's the basement. That's not in re- the, the, the baseline, I should say. That's not in response to any recent criticisms from liberal commentators. So I think it. I'm sure it would be interesting to look at how Ingram's mentions are impacted when, let's say, someone like Keith Olbermann criticizes her. I wouldn't be all that surprised if we looked at Laura Ingram's uh, Twitter mentions and they contained uh, more toxic and insulting content than, say, um, Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or some other uh, primetime Fox News host. You know, there are so many instances in which women journalists are called out by predominantly male people in the media and then their supporters take it from there in these increasingly toxic ways. So I'm, I'm curious, Megan, how did your team decide to focus on these three specific cases? So uh, on these three specific cases, we largely came across them in our own Twitter feeds. We pay attention to people who cover technology. And we had seen that when uh, Taylor Lorenz posted about uh, protecting women in the media and making sure that they had the proper resources to continue working in journalism, you know, we could see the sort of hordes of comments and quote tweets and Twitter threads about her minimizing her experiences, minimizing her work. Following that, there was a really great piece in the Washington Post covering this issue where they cited several other journalists. So we decided to go on a uh, data exploration adventure. And uh, we found we identified these three cases where we had coverage in our data that we regularly collect that uh, we could create this analysis for these specific journalists. 
I just want to add that you know these cases were fairly well known in the media development space where I work. I think it's really important to note that women journalists of color and generally people and journalists from underrepresented communities receive even more vitriol and more hate than white women or white journalists. And I think that it will be really important to quantify those differences as well in the future. How do we think about what responsibility and um, what accountability means when these sorts of situations happen? When Tucker Carlson or Glenn Greenwald or Donald Trump can say, well, I didn't tell my supporters to actually attack her. They're they're relying on a notion of plausible deniability. But at some point, it's no longer possible or shouldn't be at least to pretend like you don't know what your supporters are going to do when you get them riled up, right? I think this data shows that there is no more space for plausible deniability The impact is documented, it's well known. There is no denying the intent that is being sought when these journalists are being called out. And like I said, the misuse of the bully pulpit is clear. And Elisa, what then is the way out of this problem? How do we fix it? Can we fix it? Well, the approach that the International Women's Media Foundation has taken is to bring together a coalition against online violence. It's made up of more than 50 media organizations, media development organizations, other press freedom groups who are working together to provide resources, not only to individual journalists so they can protect themselves, but also to media organizations who have a duty of care for their journalists. We're helping media organizations train their journalists. We're also helping them to come up with policies that they should adopt before, during, and after an attack so journalists are not out there on their own dealing with these hordes on the internet. And Megan, a big part of this is just the size and the scope and and really the anonymity of the internet. Given all of that, do you think it's a fixable feature of today's media landscape? Um, I, the unfortunate answer to that is, I don't know. I think there are certainly benefits to anonymity on platforms in some respects. It allows you to be a part of communities that you may not be a part of if you were to use your identifiable features. There's a body of research showing that LGBT individuals, for example, can find community online, even um, when they're being anonymous. I also think that uh, social media can contribute incredibly positively to the online conversation. It can increase the amount that you're informed about politics. It can increase your engagement with um, current issues. However, you do have this dark side, like we've shown in this piece, that social media can also be used to target and harass um, women journalists, women politicians, um, other individuals online. But at the Center for Social Media and Politics, our our philosophy is that to fix any of these problems, whether it's online harassment, um, the misuse of the online bully pulpit, 
the spread of disinformation, all of these other sort of online harms, online ills, is rigorous research um, that can allow us to understand different different harms and different solutions to solving those online harms. And and Megan, to that end, what's the next step in this research? Where do we look at more case studies? Do where, where do you go next? So I think um, more case studies are definitely on the agenda for myself and my co-author from the center, Zeev Sanderson. We also, you know, there's a larger body of work done by the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics outside of um, this sort of work specifically on elites and uh, the impact of online conversations. For example, we uh, had a study recently that showed when we nudged users online saying that someone in their network had been suspended for using hate speech, they themselves stopped using hate speech for a certain period of time. Um, There's a lot of uh, experimental work like that um, that I think can contribute a lot to this question of how how do we make online social media a healthier place for people to have conversations. That's Megan Brown. She's a research scientist and data engineer at the Center for Social Media and Politics at New York University. Megan, thank you. Thank you so much. And also joining us today was Elisa Lees-Munoz. She's the executive director of the International Women's Media Foundation. Elisa, thank you. Thank you for covering this important issue, Matt. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.